Welcome to a very special edition of Airwaves. We have the exciting opportunity to meet the fleet. USS Carl Vinson recently returned from a historic deployment to the Indo-Pacific region. The carrier strike group sailed more than 80,000 nautical miles, conducting dual carrier operations, multinational exercises, maritime security operations, and much more. They became the first aircraft carrier to deploy with a combination of fourth and fifth generation platforms, demonstrating the awesome power and capability of the air wing of the future. I'm Michael Lauren Prue, host of the Navier Airwaves podcast, and it is my honor to welcome to the show Captain P. Scott Miller, Commanding Officer of USS Carl Vinson, and Captain Tommy Locke, Commander Carrier Air Wing 2. Welcome home, and congratulations on a successful deployment. We are so excited to have you join us today and give us the opportunity to learn more about the operational carrier environment, as well as hear ways the Navier team can support your future success. Captain Miller, tell us about the deployment and what were some of the biggest accomplishments you can share? It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. I think you've got two great guests. I'm pretty excited to be here and honored to be here with my friend, Captain uh, Bo Locke. CAG, as I often refer to him as. We work together as a great team. And I think for the uh, deployment, I think that's probably one of the biggest things you could talk about is the the integration and the and the the mutual support that happened between the air wing and the ship uh, and how we were able to take the two the two groups and put them together to create the, a very functional and operational unit that we sent down range you know we took cags airplanes the the cmv 22 and the f-35 uh, on what was probably i'll say was now the most capable aircraft carrier that the navy's ever put forward and carl vinson with the capabilities that we put into the ships in between and we maneuvered that, that aircraft carrier with that embarked air wing throughout the seventh fleet area of responsibility for seven to nine months, depending on how you're counting, with continued operational excellence and warfighting lethality uh, that we just carried with us wherever we went. Michael from CAG here. Thanks for the invite. Happy to be here with Scott, hanging out with him again, and then uh, just happy to share our story. I think one of our biggest accomplishments was what we proved uh, and showed that we were able to sustain, maintain, and operate uh, these new aircraft aboard the most agile, survivable, and lethal airfields in the world, uh, nuclear power aircraft carrier Carl Vincent. Vincent and Broadsword team, along with the program offices, type wings, and industry partners, we were actually preparing for this deployment over two years ago. And a lot of that work occurred before Scott, either him or I, were in this job. I think our successes were all were enabled by all that hard work that preceded our efforts before we even got to the seat. Another big accomplishment, at least for our teams, um, you know, these new platforms gave us the opportunity to um, sort of challenge the status quo. We embraced the paradigm shifts as we started to operate, maintain, or sustain the aircraft. We would every once in a while come across somebody that would say, hey, this is the way we've always done it. And anytime we heard that, we sort of stopped. We focused on what our mission was, what the task was, and then worked ourselves back from there. Some cases, we ended up doing it the same way, but in others, we ended up streamlining our processes or procedures and sort of biased towards mission effectiveness. So I'm super proud of our willingness to find better ways to do things. And I think our new platforms opened up that opportunity for us. And with opportunity comes challenges. Captain Miller, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced while on deployment? How did you overcome them? And what did you learn? In 
preparing for a lot of our post-deployment brief discussions, from the ship's perspective, I think it's true for any naval force where we like, where we operate forward, we are dynamic and not easily targetable. That, that makes it true for the enemy. It also makes it true for our friends in the logistics and communications paths. So a lot of work went into preparing us and filling us full of the right amount of stores, parts, materials, but we, we use those. And so the logistics train, maintaining that, uh, keeping it flexible, dynamic, responsive was definitely one of our bigger challenges. We learned a lot as we shifted from what has been primarily fifth fleet operations to now seventh fleet operations. And then the comms piece, again, it's a, it's a ship that's continuously on the move. Uh, and we have a lot of requirements that enable us to execute our mission. And so keeping those, both of those pipes at full capability, but what, from the ship's perspective, our biggest challenges. Michael from the air wing. So I echo that it's the logistics, logistics, logistics impacted obviously Scott's team, but that triggered down and, you know, impacted the carrier wing as well. You covered most of it. The, you know, the, it wasn't necessarily the logistical issues with a new platform. It was just the environment we're operating in with COVID rapid schedule changes, uncertainty schedules. It was just extremely difficult to stay on top of all of our requests for parts and supplies. Yeah, I think in many ways, our CMB-22 Bravos enabled some of our successors or some of our ways we overcame those challenges and given us the ability to do logistical runs at night uh, and some long range COD hits as well. I think another challenge that we faced just as an air wing itself was you know, trying to find the best way to optimize the operations uh, and employment of our new platforms it, within the carrier environment. And we learned one of the ways we ever overcame that is we learned to avoid, like we talked about earlier, the way we have always done it. And then when we have the opportunity to, we stop and listen to our smart warriors. And in many cases, those are our youngest sailors and officers and um, put some humility aside and listen to the people with the experience what their thoughts were. And in many ways, I think we found better ways to employ and operate and maintain the new platform at sea. So there really is so much value in listening to and learning from others. It's that diversity of thought, the diversity of ideas that can really contribute to mission success. So let's talk about the NAVAIR team. How did our products and people support this deployment? I mentioned it earlier, but the two years leading up to our deployment, the NAVAIR, the program offices were vital to developing our CONOPS, helping us think through the what-ifs and providing us with the envelopes and flight clearances we needed to succeed and to go on deployment. So we wouldn't be able to do it with all, with all that hard work, you know, leading up to it, trying to, you know, in many ways, we found early challenges that we would overcome before we even went on deployment. So that, that was critical. Uh, and that early and often environment of, of NAVAIR and the program offices were, were crucial. I think some specific examples, things that you know went well, the programs that really went well with, you know, the JPALS program. It was rapidly deployed to get. Uh, I know through some of the OT uh, operational tests with the F-35 and the Lincoln, and then um, moved over to the Vincent for our deployment, and uh, that was a huge success story. Integrating the F-35 in the precision and landing system for JPALS was phenomenal. And then the other one, which I think was was really a, a test and evolution, if you will, in landing ability uh, for the F-18s and the 18Gs, but growlers was the uh, precision landing mode, so the PLM. So PLM has, I think, revolutionized our ability to land on the boat 
the times or the days when we used to sit in Catsy at night trying to figure out how to get people aboard, manage the fuel to ensure we had enough gas to get guys multiple looks, the weather, the pitching deck. I'm happy to say it was a pretty boring time in Catsy 99% of the time. Um, I think most of that is is because of PLM. I'll add to that with the CAG. You mentioned the F-35. You know, we did a lot of the uh, CMB-22 final work for that air platform breach uh, operational capability. It's neat to see how we evolved. I mean, so a lot, a lot of the stuff that we did with uh, the F-35, uh, I say from my perspective, was seamless. So we took a Hornet squadron off, we put an F-35 squadron on, and the way that we operated within the, you know, the close controlled the carrier environment was pretty seamless. What did change was the evolutionary step of the CMB-22. Sure, we took lessons from other flat top friends and what the Marines have done before us, but uh, bringing that aircraft in to our environment was, it was fun to see and fun to be part of and to test different things. I think it has lots of room for growth and it's exciting to think about where that platform could go in the future. Being able to execute the carrier onboard delivery and then and of course a whole lot more. So Captain Locke, as compared to previous deployments, what was it like to be deployed with these new aircraft? So from my seat on the bridge with those brand new airplanes on the flight deck, the F-35 specifically, I felt like I was a little bit in a Will Smith movie uh, with some CGI aircraft on there. They just look so different from my perspective. We definitely got used to seeing them out there, but like I previously said, it was a seamless integration from those. And then the steps with the CMB-22 were great, and I can't wait to see where that one goes. In the carrier wing side, I think CAGMO says it best. It's, you know, the F-35 is like any other aircraft, any other fixed wing aircraft on board. It flew very similar. The uh, It has its own version of PLM, which makes it, you know, combined with J-PALS, makes it a very safe and expeditious recovery. I think, the, you know, the what's interesting is that we had plenty of challenges on deployment, but I think those challenges were similar for all type model series. They weren't just specific for the F-35 or the CMB-22 Bravo. And for the most part, we solved the challenges the same way, whether it was a parts challenge or if it was a recovery issue, whatever the case may be. In other cases, the new platforms, we just had to find not new ways to solve those problems. But again, you know, the motivated sailors, some of the sailors and officers we have on board are probably some of the most experienced in the Navy on both those platforms. And they really came to, to, to find solutions to some of those hard challenges along the way. So like the captain said, relatively seamless integration. So you've described the integration of the F-35C and the CMV-22 into the air wing as seamless. What new capabilities did the aircraft provide and what did you learn? So good question, Michael. The, um, the F-35 Charlie brought us a, a rugged low observable platform with some advanced sensor suites that were able to integrate across the strike group. So that's, you know, that's in a nutshell what it offered us. And what it did was it increased our lethality and survivability for the uh, CSG. Now, most of that was showcased during our workups and some of our airing Fallon integration we did. If you look at some of those performances, we, you know, that showed what we bought the aircraft for and, and it performed well. For the CMB-22 Bravo, it replaced our C2 platform for our carrier onboard delivery. Standard logistics stuff, people, parts, get it to and from the ship. Unlike the C2, we're able to do night logistic runs, which I think was nice to have. Give us some flexibility, allow us to be a little more agile with some of our operations. And also provide us with a long distance medevac capability, which we used a couple of times. And unlike 
DC2, you didn't have to do a catapult shot. So if, uh, if somebody was in a situation where they had it in a stretcher, it was it'll be easier to get them off on a CV22 and uh, some of those long range medevacs. So that proved to be very useful. But uh, overall, more agile, more survivable, more lethal. I think combined is what it gave us. So in addition to integrating these new aircraft into the operational environment, you were conducting exercises in a busy part of the world. I mean, this was a high-tempo, high-velocity deployment. What behaviors did the crew demonstrate that enabled mission success? I think that we proved that we're a very resilient force. So we had very few poor calls. We're still in the hangover from COVID mitigations. A lot of folks are trying to get us back into normal naval operations, opening back uh, our opportunities to engage with uh, foreign countries, uh, spend the dollar and get to experience and see the world. I know that's a lot of our sailors are looking forward to that. We did have probably the best, there's a commercial Wi-Fi capability on board the ship that we ha- have ever seen. And that I think enabled at least for for the sailors on a day-to-day basis, enabled them to be more resilient with their own personal lives. They also grew professionally in their ability to operate and maintain their equipment. If you want to look for silver linings in the challenges that we faced following COVID is, is that I think a lot of the deployed naval forces have learned that the sailor has to be able to fix the piece of equipment remotely and we've not been able to rely as much on onboard tech assists that we have seen in the past. So that's been a real silver lining. A lot of those capabilities and smarts are, are being put back into the sailors. And you bring up such an interesting point. I mean, we've all had to learn how to be a bit more resilient, communicate in new ways, and learn how to help each other in the remote environment. Captain Locke, tell me about the value of communication between Navair and the squadron. I don't have any specific examples for this deployment, but in general, you know, being able to reach back to the program offices or real-time experiences or data, I think helps both the NavAir team and the end users. For the NavAir team, it validates some of their solutions or creates new, allows them to create new ones, which I think is pretty important. Uh, and then for the end users, it just lets us refine our tools that we have available to us. I know that the CB22 Bravo program itself was extensively involved in and the Arium 30 success on deployment, you know, from getting us through Comp2X before OT was even complete, and then pushing us through deployment as we, you know, uncovered unique challenges along the way. So very thankful for everybody's hard work back there at NavAir. So there has been a lot of focus on availability. Were you able to maintain the readiness levels required? Again, from the Air Ring perspective, we were able to meet the availability required for our deployment. From the ship's perspective, I came up with a theory, uh, I'll, I'll call it a law of the Navy, that stuff breaks and we fix it. Maintain the positive. And it's a struggle that we fight through all deployment long, where we want to maintain the fix to break ratio is in our favor. Most of the time we were winning that battle. Every now and then we would, we would struggle and the, and the folks would fight through the challenges. We got great support from home. And again, like I said earlier, the sailors developed a lot of personal and professional resilience through that, whether we're fixing catapults or arresting gear elevators, any of the stuff on the ship that might break, we were able to get it fixed. So what were some of your greatest challenges in meeting the required readiness level? I think some of it will be repeats, but our biggest challenge we've mentioned already was logistics. Uh, the ability to get off-ship requisitions filled expeditiously and out to us was you know, hampered by COVID, schedule changes, unpredictable nature of our movement. 
the one thing that we did that we did push back that lesson learned and you know, Scott's team was really was on the ball with that, getting it pushed back to, so that we could fix the range and depth of parts for the linking floor mount to door. Interesting enough too, our operational density, I think impacts our efficiency at maintaining aircraft just a bit. CAGMO will tell you that the operational density didn't really impact our flight operations that much. We have a fixed number of aircraft we can have on the flight deck at any time. What it really impacted was the difficult Jenga puzzle down in the hangar bay. We were able to overcome those challenges, but it took some deliberate planning to find an effective and efficient way to manage the maintenance in the hangar bay. Not easy, but, but doable. And it's just something that we didn't really think about or consider until we actually got in that environment and uh, got in down in that jungle and just had to figure out how to get aircraft moved, wings spread, aircraft jacked, back to the flight deck, down to the hangar bay uh, in an expeditious manner. Much of our workforce does not have an operational background, and they don't always have the opportunity to experience carrier life. Paint a picture for us. What do we need to know about deployment and the ship environment? First off, I would say the ship moves. It's hot and sweaty and sticky. It's greasy, slippery. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's not a lab. And I think one of the biggest challenges is probably trying to emulate or simulate that environment in operational development of products that are, you know, capabilities that come out to the ship into the air wing. So the sooner we can get to operational test, operational environment with whatever the new thing is, I'd bring it out. I'd like to add it's loud. There's not a lot of extra space. There's no extra air conditioning and there are no extra racks. So as they're, you know, developing new programs, new procedures, you know, or, or whatever the case is, or, you know, have an idea to get some contractors out here for long periods of time, all that comes at a cost. You've got to take something off to get back on there, to get them on there. So that's just, you know, we are using every nook and cranny to be able to maintain, sustain, operate at sea. And that just, just need to keep that in mind. Absolutely. So looking ahead, what is your biggest priority in achieving future success? Like I said earlier, I said we took the most capable and lethal ship air wing team downrange last summer. I don't think we came back that way because I think Lincoln behind us had assumed that mantle Lincoln and Truman deployed. But, uh, you know, from a ship's perspective, we are knee deep in taking all those deployed systems and repairing the stuff that we weren't able to and continuing to upgrade and maintain this you know, national asset, the aircraft carrier. So that's what we're doing is we're in the, in the midst of, of repairing our ship, putting on new systems to make it more capable. We got our sailors out of training, getting those sailors that have been with us at a higher level of training. And then guess what? As soon as we walked, got home, we had hundreds of new sailors uh, ready to meet us at the pier and, and become the next generation of U.S. Navy sailors deployed at sea. So we're in that continuous process, that drumbeat, of continuing to, to build and, and improve and maintain. I agree with Scott, you know, sharing our experience and our knowledge, pushing that forward is critical. Continuing to invest in the training of our sailors and officers, we are continuing to find that when you put the new platforms and capabilities in the arms or in the hands of trained and experienced officers and sailors, they will not fail. As we close out today's podcast, what message do you have for our workforce? What can we do as an organization to enable the fleet to compete, deter, and win tonight, tomorrow, and in the future? First of all, thank you for your continued support, continued efforts in delivering new capabilities and platforms to the fleet. Continue to focus on the end user. We all serve in the profession of arms, and we are measured 
by mission effectiveness. So focus on that, focus on the end users, and we're all going to win. Holy Greek, Greg. Yeah, I think just continue to think of ways to make us better. I know there's a lot of people with good ideas out there. CAG talked about the young sailor or the young officer who's looking at a problem a new way for the first time. You know, a lot of us who are in charge or old, we have a hard time thinking of creative new ways to do things. And the young, fresh minds, whether they're on the deck plates up there on the flight deck or in a squadron maintenance space, or whether they're back home somewhere thinking or creating a new thing, just continue to fight and think for ways to make us better and more lethal, more capable, and more competitive in the environment. And I think that is the perfect way to wrap up today's podcast. Thank you both so much for joining us. Conversations like this one are so important to our workforce. Your feedback is invaluable and it gives us the opportunity to grow, learn, get better, and deliver capabilities the fleet needs to ensure mission success. Of course, you can check out more episodes of the Airwaves podcast on all your favorite listening apps. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.